Good evening, everyone. I'm Louise Mirror, New York Historical's president and CEO, and it really is a great pleasure to see all of you in our beautiful Robert H. Smith Auditorium. Uh, among the exhibitions on view right now is our newly opened Tattooed New York, which um, is getting wonderful play and is actually, despite its catchy title and the tattoo phenomenon, which the exhibition goes into, is a very serious history show. So I recommend it to all of you. If you haven't seen it, it is on our main floor in our Smith South Galleries. Tonight's program, The American President, Part Two, is the Bill President Bill Clinton Lecture in American History at the New York Historical Society. And I would like to thank Bernard Schwartz for making this lecture possible, along with all the other programs that he supports. I'd like to thank and recognize two of our trustees who are among us this evening, Cy Sternberg and Eric Wallach. And I'd like to thank Cy and Eric for all they do on behalf of this great institution. Thanks so much. To Tonight's program will last about an hour, and it will include a question and answer session. The Q&A will be conducted via written questions on note cards. You should have received a note card as you entered the auditorium. If you didn't, uh, staff are still going through the, the, uh, the seats, the aisles with note cards. And questions will be, uh, your note cards will be collected later on in the program. Following the uh, program, there will be a formal book signing. And copies of our speaker's books will be available for purchase in our New York History Store. We are delighted to welcome William E. Luchtenberg back to the New York Historical Society. He is the William Rand Keenan Jr. Professor Emeritus of History at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Professor Luchtenberg has taught at numerous universities over the course of six decades, including Columbia and Oxford universities. He served as presidential elections analyst for NBC and his presidential inaugural inauguration consultant for CBS, PBS, and C-SPAN. Professor Luchtenberg was the first recipient of the Arthur M. Schlesinger Jr. Award for Distinguished Writing in American History of Enduring Public Significance. He's the author of 16 books, including The American President, From Teddy Roosevelt to Bill Clinton. Harold Holzer, our moderator today, is the Jonathan F. Fanton Director of the Roosevelt House Public Policy Institute at Hunter College. He's the author of many books, including Lincoln and the Power of the Press. He's the winner of the Gilder, Gilder Lehrman Lincoln Prize and the 2016 Goldsmith Book Prize at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. In 2008, he was awarded the National Humanities Medal by President George Bush. Due to a death in the family, Douglas Brinkley is uh, not able to participate in the program tonight. As always, before we begin, I'd like to ask that you please make sure that anything that makes a noise, like a cell phone, is switched off. And now, please join me in welcoming our guests. Thank you. Well, good evening. I uh, want first to... Uh, Apologize to all the Doug Brinkley fans who are here for not being Doug Brinkley. Um, but uh, I will not apologize and express any regret for this opportunity, any opportunity to engage in another conversation, public or private, with my friend Bill Luchtenberg. What an honor, unexpected you, thrill to be sitting with you again. Um, we have so much to cover, I guess a century. Um, and I know some of you were here at the Historical Society for part one, but as I was not, you'll forgive me if I start somewhat at the beginning of the century. Um, this book, as you've described it, is the, the capstone of a lifetime of interest in the presidency. Um, I want to say that that may be the understatement of the, uh, of the century. Um, it's... Bill Luckenberg has not only manifested an interest in the American presidency, he has done more than any historian, in my judgment, uh, in shaping our understanding of the presidency, all of its uh, possibilities and, and limits. And I know you'll agree that we've never felt more obliged to study the past for lessons that we might uh, impart for, for the present. So let's see if we can spend a few minutes on most 
of the precedents that you that you cover. And if we can, let's start with the man who began the century, um, the combination of St. Vitus and St. Paul, as you describe him, uh, Theodore Roosevelt. Um, was he pure act as his Secretary of State, Abraham Lincoln's private secretary, John Hay said, or a man who recreated the presidency? Well, he was uh, an, an extraordinarily thoughtful man, uh, a man who wrote uh, uh, a, a great number of books, an amazing number of uh, letters in the course of his, of his, uh, of his lifetime. Uh, he uh, fascinated uh, uh, men and women of letters around, around the world. So he was a great deal more than a pure act, but he had an enormous impact on the institution of the presidency. I uh, explained at one point in the book that in an earlier book, I wrote the blunt uh, sentence of, that the uh, American presidency, as we know it today, was created by Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And I started out writing this history of the 20th century presidency uh, with that conviction. But the more I read and learned about Theodore Roosevelt, the more I became convinced that that's where the modern presidency begins. That when one considers uh, how weak uh, the American presidency was in the late 19th century and how powerful an office it was when uh, Theodore Roosevelt uh, uh, surrenders power in order to shoot lions in Africa, <laughs> uh, you get a sense of, uh, of, of a major change of a sort uh, that we've never seen in this country uh, before or since. So he handpicks his successor, and I, I do want you to spend a little bit of time discussing the uh, phlegmatic but jolly William Howard Taft, and then if you would finish by telling us, aside from personal ambition, why Teddy was so disappointed in his successor when he, of course, launches his own comeback four years later. Well, I think he would have been disappointed in any successor because they had to surrender power to him. Uh, he, uh, uh, he, he, he greatly admired Taft, who uh, had uh, served in uh, uh, a number of uh, uh, important public offices. Uh, he thought he uh, had a fellow progressive in Taft, someone who shared his outlook on foreign affairs. And uh, he found that wasn't quite what, what happened, uh, that Taft seemed to him to uh, be uh, a considerably more uh, conservative man than uh, than you'd imagined, and also did not infuse the office uh, with uh, the kind of energy that uh, uh, that T.R. Uh, had inspirited it with. Uh, the some of this uh, criticism was unfair because uh, numbers of the most uh, important progressive steps of the early 20th century uh, occur under, under uh, Taft. But, but Taft did yield to uh, the conservative wing of the Republican Party in the Senate and uh, on uh, conservation, particularly in the uh, uh, notorious Ballinger-Pinchot affair. He... Uh, uh, acted in a way that uh, encouraged the uh, opponents of a strong uh, environmental uh, policy and uh, alarmed uh, Teddy Roosevelt, uh, who was in, in Europe and who kept hearing tales from, uh, from Taft's uh, critics. Uh, so, he, he, pardon me, Harold. He, he also... Um, uh, made the, the Taft made uh, uh, the gross mistake in Roosevelt's judgment of questioning that something Roosevelt had done in, in an antitrust suit. Uh, 
And uh, I think Taft was right about this, but uh, it was uh, unwise to cross Theodore Roosevelt. And, uh, who, who was a very young man at the end of, still young at yeah, the end he, of Taft's He was time. indeed, yes. Uh, and in addition, they, uh, they disagreed on foreign policy. Uh, there was uh, uh, never uh, a more warrior-like figure in the White House than, uh, than Theodore Roosevelt, whereas uh, Taft uh, promoted arbitration agreements and uh, other methods for the peaceful resolution of, of uh, disputes uh, ab uh, abroad. By 1912, when Taft runs for re-election on a Republican ticket, and uh, Roosevelt runs on a minor party ticket, the progressive Bull Moose uh, ticket, they have such a falling out that they're calling one another names uh, such as Fathead. Uh, we won't ask which one called the other <laughs> Fathead. Leave it to the imagination. Uh, but for better or worse, this is the election that gives us the primary system that what we a lead for you, yes, <laughs> <laughs> right, yes, yes. So one of the one of the joys and and marvels of this book, in my view, is that it not only reverberates with this astonishing storehouse of knowledge that you have, but it creates in seriatim, it gives us these series of pithy state descriptive statements that really make you sit up and take notice about what people felt about their president at any given time. And the phrase that struck me about Woodrow Wilson, who follows Taft after that Republican split in 1912, is that he was called in his day the American Icarus. He flew too high and got his wings yeah. burned, I guess. So was Wilson's failing his, his ambitions for world peace? I mean, how... How, how do you rate him now in ref, on reflection after he tried unsuccessfully to create an international peacekeeping operation? Well, when I went to school, uh, Woodrow Wilson was the hero of all my teachers. And uh, the League of Nations, the great institution in, in, uh, in Geneva that the United States uh, uh, should have uh, joined. Uh, nowadays, he has a, a different... Uh, reputation, uh, uh, particularly as a racist, which unhappily he was. Uh, it, we, it, it's often thought uh, that the reason uh, that uh, there was uh, uh, segregation in Washington, D.C. is that it was a, uh, a southern city and uh, followed the mores of the uh, region. In fact, uh, segregation was uh, 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 in government was uh, uh, deliberately uh, introduced by Woodrow Wilson and the uh, and the southern uh, uh, southerners in the cabinet, who he he brought into uh, power uh, with him. So there's a a, a, a decided range of of, uh, of of views. I th I think that. What one, uh, if, if one were to uh, point to more positive aspects, and of course that's a very serious negative one, uh, it would be the, uh, the creation of the Federal Reserve System, uh, efforts such as the Child Labor Act of 1916, uh, the uh, uh, immense uh, program and economic mobilization in uh, World War I that laid much of the basis for the New Deal in the, uh, in the 1930s, uh, and also the uh, effort he did make for the uh, League of Nations. Uh, I don't think we see that anymore in the kind of heroic uh, terms that uh, my teachers uh, saw it in, but nonetheless, it was an important, certainly a, the forerunner of the uh, of the United Nations and uh, a, a an aspiration 
that uh, uh, still seems admirable. And and among other innovations, the first president to really put up a fight for a Supreme Court justice went back to giving State of the Union addresses before Congress, which had been uh, had been a, a tradition that had ended, and he resumed it. So a lot of modern presidential um, um, precedent set by Wilson. Yeah, I take that and what Harold was just saying in, in, in reverse order. Uh, we take it for granted now uh, that uh, presidents deliver uh, State of the Union addresses, but uh, that was done initially, and then uh, uh, Thomas Jefferson thought this was too much like the speech of the king from the throne that uh, this was an unfortunate uh, Federalist uh, leftover. And it was uh, uh, Woodrow Wilson in 1913 uh, who, uh, for the first time in uh, more than a century, uh, reintroduced the idea of appearing before Congress and, and delivering the, uh, the State of the Union address. On your first point, uh, Yes, he not only fought, Wilson not only fought uh, uh, for a Supreme Court justice, but the Supreme Court justice he fought for was Louis Brandeis, uh, who was opposed for a number of reasons, but a lot of it was just uh, shameless anti-Semitism. And uh, Brandeis was uh, uh, an important uh, theoretician for, uh, for Woodrow Wilson's... Uh, uh, the new freedom uh, gave the provided the basic philosophy for Wilson's uh, uh, economic uh, programs, and uh, later had a considerable uh, influence on that wing of uh, New Deal thought in the in the 1930s. And he was able to uh, finally, after a bitter fight, uh, to gain confirmation of Brandeis. To the, to the court. You, you say in the book um, that uh, the day of the giants passed for, for a while yeah, with yeah. the uh, uh, advent of uh, uh, Harding and, and Coolidge, and Hoover for that matter, but you had some fascinating things to say about Harding, which I, I marveled at because you suggested that he was... Um, that he deserves credit and hasn't received it for being um, pro-civil liberties. And there were some questions about Wilson, obviously, during World War I and civil liberties, um, anti-lynching, and that, and that Florence Harding, who has achieved the reputation of, of Lucretia Borgia at this point, was actually a rather enlightened and modern first lady. So before we move to FDR, which, uh, which we're probably waiting for, just... What motivated you to reassess Harding so dramatically? Well, I don't think Harding comes off very well. Uh, I would be misleading readers if uh, if, if there I, may be a Harding I, fan I, out there who may buy the book. So <laughs> we have to be... uh, if I attempted to do that, but uh, what 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 is true is that uh, the end of the Wilson presidency uh, was a miserable time uh, in. Uh, in American life, after uh, Wilson uh, has a stroke, uh, is uh, an isolated figure in the White House, uh, and uh, the Hardings uh, uh, bring a uh, uh, a new openness uh, to uh, to American society, to the institution of the of of the presidency. Uh, Mrs. Harding, who is uh, you say it usually doesn't come across uh, uh, very well, uh, uh, said uh, about the drawn blinds of the Wilson era, uh, the American people uh, paid for this uh, old White House. Why shouldn't they be able to look in and pull the blinds? And uh, the, uh, when there was, uh, when Eugene Debs, the socialist leader, uh, was sent to prison under Wilson, and when uh, uh, subsequently uh, a, a document was placed uh, uh, before 
Wilson for uh, to, to, to free Debs from the uh, penitentiary. He just scrolled on a denied WW. Uh, Harding uh, granted the, uh, Debs his freedom and uh, uh, signed, signed it uh, earlier uh, than was expected because he said he wanted him to be able to have Christmas dinner with his wife. And he, he asked to have uh, Debs come in to see him. Uh, and uh, he didn't want this just to be a, a routine action. And when Debs enters the Oval Office, uh, Harding, very excited, bounds out of his chair, hands extended, and uh, says, oh, I'm so glad of this uh, opportunity uh, to, uh, to, to be able to talk to you, Mr. Debs. Uh, so that's, that's, that's a Harding a little different from uh, the unhappily corrupt uh, president, conservative president, uh, a man who is just as bad as we always thought he was, uh, who uh, inhabits the other pages of my uh, <laughs> uh, treatment of, 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 of Harding. But you've, you've given him some humanity tonight, and, and in the book. The, again, these, the, the, the incidents that are described, and of course the Deb's welcome is so seemingly out of character from what we assume to be the Harding that we know. There are also wonderful stories about Coolidge. I love your story that he had so little to interest him in the White House that he used to count the cars that went by um, <laughs> and to occupy himself. And you describe Hoover as a humanitarian without humanity, which was also a pretty <laughs> piercing uh, comment. So he, he, I should say on Coolidge that for a couple of years, many years ago, I taught at Smith College and lived down the street from Grace Coolidge, uh, a lady I greatly admired. Uh, and uh, my, uh, uh, my main uh, criticism of Coolidge would not be his economic policies, but uh, how badly he treated his wife, who, who, who didn't deserve it, and somehow... Uh, uh, managed to uh, survive, and she had been a uh, uh, a teacher uh, in the uh, Clark School for the Deaf in Northampton. And uh, he uh, told her that she couldn't smoke, what she had to wear, a whole couldn't use uh, rouge, uh, and she was not to give press conferences. And uh, she didn't want to cause difficulty uh, in her marriage. Uh, but she gathered reporters around her and spoke in sign language. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> so you devote the, the most pages in, in the book to Franklin Roosevelt, which is appropriate since he spent more time as president than, than anyone else. And, and you rank him as the century's giant. Is it, this is sort of a softball question, but I'll ask it anyway, is it length of service? Is it the two crises he met and conquered? What, what makes you assess him as the yeah. giant of the century? Well, there's uh, nothing at all unusual about my, my ranking. Um, every so often, uh, historians get a call from the New York Times, Time Magazine, somebody else. C-SPAN. Asking us, C-SPAN, yes. Uh, asking us to, uh, in fact, right at the moment from, uh, from C-SPAN. Yes. Um, We're both uh, voters, but like Academy voters, we can't discuss it. Really. <laughs> <laughs> uh, asking us to rank American presidents. And every one of these polls, this started with uh, Arthur Schlesinger mm -hmm. Sr. at Harvard in the, in the uh, early uh, 1980s, all of these polls uh, have resulted uh, in, the, uh, in the same rankings with only, uh, with presidents uh, ranked great, near great, average, below average, and failure. And uh, only to all those polls, only three presidents have been, uh, have been graded as great. And the three are uh, George Washington, uh, Abraham Lincoln and Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Uh, in uh, Lincoln, 
Harold's uh, uh, one of the leading authorities on the Lincoln presidency, uh, is always placed in uh, first, and then usually Washington, and then FDR. In the more recent polls, FDR has uh, moved into uh, uh, second place. But uh, so my 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 putting him there. Uh, was hardly uh, an original contribution. It's a, it's a consensus of the of the historical guild. The uh, uh, the softball question is uh, actually one that can't be uh, uh, separated out in in the sense that the answer to why he is ranked so highly is all of the above that he was in office. Uh, longer uh, than, uh, and than any other president has been, and it's highly likely will ever be uh, because of the two-term amendment that Republicans put through after he left office that was regarded as a, uh, was called a posthumous act of vengeance uh, <laughs> against, uh, against FDR, but it has the odd effect of uh, of, of guaranteeing, unless it's changed, that no one uh, in all the annals of the presidency will ever have served uh, as uh, as long as uh, Roosevelt did. But beyond that, clearly, uh, the uh, uh, the spirit with which uh, he carried the country through the Great Depression, the reforms of the New Deal, uh, such as the Social Security Act of 1935, and uh, his uh, uh, leadership uh, in the uh, war uh, uh, against Hitler and the uh, ultimate uh, successful uh, resolution of that war, uh, ending with the uh, creation of the United Nations. It's a, it's a powerful list of things that, uh, that FDR did, and that's only a few of them. But you stress throughout your appraisal of FDR, two kind of alliterative intangibles, confidence and communications. And you stress uh, how much that impacted on American anxieties in both the Depression and the war. Yes. Uh, one of my uh, uh, good friends, colleague at the University of North Carolina, John Casson, uh, published a book a couple of years ago on Shirley Temple. Uh, and uh, in it, uh, he says it was uh, uh, Shirley Temple and FDR who got the country uh, <laughs> uh, through the uh, uh, through the depression. The, those uh, uh, smiling faces that uh, someone uh, said about FDR uh, that he must have been psychoanalyzed by God mm. uh, because. Uh, he seemed so fearless and uh, imbued the country with that uh, kind of uh, confidence. He once uh, uh, said, told the story that uh, when Andrew Jackson uh, was dying, somebody asked, will he go to heaven? And the answer was, uh, he will if he wants to. <laughs> uh, and if I'm asked, will this country uh, get through the Great Depression. My answer is, it will if it wants to. And it was uh, that that sense of uh, freedom from fear, uh, self-confidence, the ability to view others with with con confidence, fearlessness, uh, uh, with, given the terrible circumstances with which he took office in March 1933. That's a very important part, as uh, your question suggests, of his contribution to this country. And the other part, um, of course, is the communications aspect. And as you know, I work now in, in the place where uh, Franklin Roosevelt gave his first fireside chat, although it wasn't so designated, just a couple of days after his election from, from down on East 65th Street in Manhattan. And that broadcast on radio was derided as violently and vociferously as 
Twitter feeds are today because it was considered un- unpresidential, undignified, yeah. and yet his mastery of a new medium brought him brought his message to the people and made them think he was their friends as he addressed them. So communication is yeah. surely a part of it. No? A very important part. Uh, uh, the, he, he started the, uh, uh, the free and open press conference uh, at uh, the, the uh, press conferences in the past, and uh, particularly in the presidents of the 1920s, carried the stipulation that questions had to be uh, submitted in advance. Uh, a little bit like tonight. <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, at the end of the uh, free uh, and open uh, first press conference, uh, reporters uh, couldn't believe it. Uh, they put down their uh, notepads and pencils and broke out in applause. Uh, uh, the, uh, and then the other aspect of it was the... Uh, as you were saying of the of the fireside chats, uh, the uh, new invention of uh, the radio uh, was a great uh, uh, boon uh, to presidents. But they treated the microphone uh, the way uh, they treated speaking in a large uh, mm-hmm. lecture hall and boomed out. Uh, uh, Speeches, uh, Roosevelt understood that they, there were groups, indi- families, individuals sitting at radio sets around the country. And uh, in the uh, first fireside chat, which was on the banking crisis of 1933, <coughs> he, he said, Dear friends, my friends, uh, and, uh, and then he just conversationally said, I want to speak tonight to the American people about banking. And, uh, and he in, explained the situation. And he explained the situation. He, he's, uh, he, uh, one commentator said that uh, uh, he explained it so clearly that even a banker could understand. LAUGHTER <laughs> Yeah. You know, they, you, you mentioned Shirley Temple as a, uh, an antidote to the Depression. Clearly, the people who revolutionized communication on the radio were Bing Crosby and Franklin Roosevelt because they understood the medium and understood you do sotto voce and intimately. And people got the impression that he was on the air constantly. But in fact, there were remarkably few fireside chats in, in his 12 years. But Philip Roth once wrote that... Uh, as a young man in Newark, on a hot summer day, he would walk down the street to a friend's house, and because of all the open windows, he could hear an entire fireside chat on the street. From wi- it's just a wonderful evocation of the, of the impact of that voice. Yes, exactly right. So um, I know we're skipping around, but we're only at 1945, so let's keep, let's keep pressing ahead. You are among those who say that Truman, uh, who you remind people was called the Missouri Compromise um, in, his, in his day, was uh, um, undervalued, uh, underestimated. Yes. But you, you're, you're not unequivocally a fan of Truman's. You point out a lot of his failures and a lot of his successes. Uh, successes. Um, how did he, how did he um, exceed expectations in following a giant? And, and where do you find the lapses? Well, if, if uh, uh, you uh, uh, take a look at, uh, uh, at what he did in, uh, in, in, in civil rights, that would strike me the most. I was uh, the only white on the field staff of a <coughs> civil rights organization when, uh, when Truman was president and... Uh, I sat in the uh, Senate galleries when our legislation went down to defeat. It was uh, a desperate time. Uh, we, uh, a, a, uh, an African-American uh, soldier who came back from overseas and wanted to show his uh, family the nation's capital couldn't uh, 
uh, sleep in a downtown Washington hotel room, uh, uh, couldn't eat in a, uh, in a, in a Washington uh, restaurant, uh, couldn't even go to uh, uh, a movie uh, in, in downtown after we had fought a war against fascism. Uh, and uh, there comes a moment in uh, the White House when a delegation comes to Truman and tells him about an episode where a, uh, an African-American soldier gets into a minor dispute uh, and with a bus driver and for no good reason is arrested, uh, taken into a South Carolina jail, and in the cell is beaten about the head uh, so badly that he's blinded. He's within a few miles of seeing his uh, wife and his uh, newborn child. Uh, and uh, Truman hears his story and he bounces out of the chair and says, my God, I didn't know it was bad as that. And uh, he creates a, a president's committee on civil rights, but comes in with a series of recommendations, not only against uh, uh, racial discrimination, but against segregation. And uh, he uh, uh, advocates uh, strongly, uh, supports uh, that report and demands that uh, legislation. It results in the split in the Democratic Party, the Dixiecrat candidacy of Strom Thurmond in 1948. Uh, after 1944, uh, the South, which had been the solid South, that is the solidly Democratic South, is never solid for the Democrats again, down to our, our present day. But it does lead to uh, a, a number of important developments, not least uh, the presidential executive order, uh, for understandable reasons in recent days, executive orders have uh, had a bad odor. Uh, but one needs to remember that it was an executive order that desegregated the armed forces. So that was one important thing, very important thing Truman did. Uh, if you take a look at foreign policy, uh, the Marshall Plan, uh, the, uh, the creation of, of NATO, the, uh, the Berlin airlift, and so much more. All of this happens under, under Truman. And if you look at the institution of the presidency, uh, for, for good or ill, uh, the creation of the Department of Defense, of the Atomic Energy uh, Commission, of the Council of Economic Advisors, uh, so, so many of the institutions of the executive office today start with Truman. So uh, I think he is an underappreciated president, uh, president. But is it offset by Korea? You suggest that it's a problem for you in assessing Truman. Yeah. And, the bomb, and, and, and the bomb, you, you don't, you're, you're new, neutral on in the end. You don't use that as, as a dispositive evidence for condemning or praising him. No, uh, I have a quote from uh, a uh, young uh, naval aide, George Elsie, uh, who, who said it's, when you talk about the dropping of the atomic uh, bomb, you can say, well, that was a horrible thing. And uh, well, a whole goddamn war is a horrible thing. All the terrible loss of life uh, in, in, uh, in, uh, in, in World War II. Uh, the, the, you mentioned the Korean War. That is uh, uh, often thought of as one of uh, Truman's achievements. And, uh, he was very proud of it. I thought his conduct of the, of the war uh, was uh, uh, one of uh, the grievous errors that he made. Uh, we, we, we think uh, 
with approval of uh, his uh, dismissal of, uh, of General MacArthur and his defense of uh, the institution of the presidency and of civil control of the military. But uh, 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 Truman uh, pursued uh, a course, a provocative course in, uh, in Korea that in many ways followed uh, MacArthur's own lines, uh, uh, needlessly uh, expanded the war, uh, resulted in terrible loss of life, uh, and I think that's one of the, of the shortcomings of the, of the Truman presidency. Yeah. I want to get to a couple more presidents before I give you some audience questions, because as you might expect, most of them are about a 21st century president, not a 20th century president, which we'll respect if we have time. But this is a big leap, but I, I do want to get to Reagan, because um, you don't usually laugh aloud when you're reading 900-page history books, but you have some pretty funny material in there about <laughs> Reagan. I, I must say I had never heard the line that you recounted that... Uh, his advisors thought of putting a sign up in the cabinet room saying, Reagan slept here. Yes. But <laughs> yes. You remind us that he had all of the um, conviction of a patent medicine salesman and yet was and is in many quarters beloved. Airports are named for him. Buildings are named for him. Is, is it the dawn of the, of a, as Kennedy was in a way, a, a different kind of presidency, a television presidency, a movie star presidency, which may lead to a reality show presidency, but what is the magic? What, how, how did it happen? Well, along the lines of where you began, Harold, uh, uh, somebody, uh, when, when uh, Reagan was first thought of uh, as, a, as a candidate for public office for governor of California, Jack Warner of Warner Brothers <laughs> said, no, won't do, won't do. Bob Cummings for governor. <laughs> Ronald Reagan for his best friend. <laughs> and then someone else who had known, known Reagan said, you could uh, wade in his deepest thoughts and not get your ankles wet. <laughs> uh, so, and yet, as that, President Bush would say, he was misunderestimated. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, and it's Reagan. I found harder to write about than any other president uh, because you don't know, can't figure out what's going on there. Uh, he uh, he has a gripping account of uh, his experience as. Uh, Signal Corps uh, photographer, soldier in World War II, uh, coming upon uh, one of the hideous uh, Nazi extermination uh, camps. Uh, very moving until you realize he was never overseas in <laughs> World War II. He never, uh, never left this country. And, there's story after story. In his uh, inaugural address, uh, he paid tribute uh, to uh, an, an American soldier in World War I uh, uh, whose grave was in Arlington. And, uh, and he was looking out toward the Arlington National Cemetery. And his aides had told him that the man grave was in Wisconsin. Uh, uh, but Reagan wasn't dissuaded by that. He didn't say it was a, it was a, a good story. And many of his stories, uh, it turns out, come, come from movies that he saw, which seem just as credible as uh, uh, any other source of inf information. One of his favorite stories was of, uh, of a young gunner uh, on a bombing plane who was shot, fatally wounded. And the uh, pilot says to him, that's 
that's all right, son, we'll take it down together. And without stopping to think that if in fact that happened and the plane went down and crashed, there would be no way of knowing <laughs> what one man said to another man <laughs> in those final minutes. And it turned out that this was a line of uh, Dana Andrews in a, <laughs> in a, in a movie that, uh, that, that Reagan had, had, had seen. Uh, but what he did do, uh, uh, particularly after the uh, Carter presidency, and there's much good to be said about Jimmy Carter, both during and particularly after uh, his, uh, his uh, presidency, but it was a, a time of limits, of, of, of gloom. Uh, uh, as you were suggesting, Harold, as he was... Uh, Reagan was an, an, an inspiriting figure, uh, and uh, that probably more the, the, the way that he, like FDR, whom he greatly admired, uh, uh, brought good cheer to the country. So yeah. did so did uh, so did Reagan, and and around the around the world, and so. may have been just as revolutionary or counter-revolutionary as FDR in terms of changing the direction of, of uh, government activity in our lives and, and uh, uh, expansion of government, although he did expand the government. He just said he was shrinking it. But in yes. terms of reacting to New Deal, he was a, a crucial figure. Yes. Uh, he, he, uh, uh, he, he voted for FDR all four times. I remember... I was in the uh, National Office of Americans for Democratic Action in Washington, and uh, the uh, executive director, Jim Loeb, uh, uh, later became one of Kennedy's ambassadors, uh, bouncing into rooms so excited about uh, Ronnie Reagan and his liberal views. And uh, Reagan supported Helen Gahagan Douglas in uh, one of her... Uh, well, she was an actress. It was the, the fraternity that was part of it. <laughs> They, they they certainly knew one another from from uh, Hollywood, but uh, the uh, the uh, Douglas campaign uh, removed his name from the letterhead because he was regarded as too radical, and uh, could give her a left wing image in the in the campaign. Uh, so he he had that background, and yet turned sharply in the other direction uh, against government. Famously said in his inaugural address, government is not uh, the solution to our problems, government is the problem. Uh, but as you, you also were indicating in your question, when you take a look at what actually happened, you don't find that under Reagan, uh, government uh, uh, was reduced, though he claimed it was, believed he'd done it, uh, but he didn't do it. And yet uh, he did create uh, an atmosphere of distrust of federal initiatives that is still with us today. It, in, in that sense, uh, for good or real, I think for real, but others will think differently, uh, uh, he had an important, a long-range impact on the history of this country. So let me get to a few of these questions because it's hard to believe that we're running out of time. Um, we have one question about the 20th century, at least. Um, you mentioned that the end of Wilson's presidency was a miserable time. Can you tell us why you reached that conclusion and how? what was the misery? Well, the, uh, we have a, a, a president uh, who is barely functioning, uh, who, uh, whose uh, uh, wife had to, uh, who was not a particularly political figure, had to review uh, 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 papers for him. We never know, knew how much he comprehended and uh, how much he didn't. It was a time of, uh, of uh, terrible race riots, uh, a time of, of, uh, of uh, mounting uh, inflation, uh, a, a time of, uh, of uh, disappointment uh, in... Uh, uh, our uh, uh, 
our venture abroad in World War I, and of course, uh, uh, a time of, uh, of, uh, of the failure of the United States to, uh, to enter the League of Nations. So uh, there's not very much good that one can say about uh, uh, the condition of America in 1919-1920, and I thank you for the question. Um, here's one that at least has a, a toehold in the 20th century and then moves on. You were critical in the book of Hillary Clinton's handling of health care reform. Do you sense in her recent campaign that she learned from her mistakes or repeated them? Uh, there was uh, a very nice review of my book in the uh, Wall Street Journal uh, that had a sentence saying that if Hillary Clinton is elected president, I should not expect an invitation to the White House. Uh, I, I, uh, I do think that uh, Hillary Clinton did a number of things uh, during the Clinton presidency uh, that uh, carried over into the campaign. And uh, the sense of, uh, of, uh, of being privileged uh, was uh, w was uh, was one of, one of one of those things. Uh, one of the uh, uh, dismaying aspects of the uh, uh, recent election uh, was uh, the that uh, most uh, uh, college-educated white women voted for Trump. Uh, voted against uh, Hillary Clinton. There was a, uh, uh, a conviction early on that uh, the prospect that finally, after so many other countries in the war world had uh, put in positions of power uh, people such as uh, Golda Meir, that the United States finally had this opportunity to catch up and would welcome that, uh, and women particularly would welcome that opportunity. Uh, that's not what happened, and uh, well, of course, as you know, not what happened. And the uh, uh, and part of it was that some of uh, of Hillary Clinton's behavior uh, before this campaign alienated numbers of women as when she made the statement, well, I could have stayed home and baked cookies, and instead I decided to pursue my career. And numbers of women who, uh, who uh, supported Trump uh, have, were outspoken during the campaign and afterwards about saying that, uh, that Hillary Clinton did not represent uh, them. So. I think that uh, there were antagonisms raised during the Clinton presidency that carried over uh, into the campaign and, uh, to my regret, uh, hurt her and uh, denied her the election. So here, here's an interesting question. Um, in the history of the 20th century or before or since, I guess we're getting an adjustment here. Right. Has a president um, ever refused to obey a court order? If so, who enforces it? And what happens next? Uh, <laughs> uh, a, uh, a congressman who's a good friend came over to our house for tea last Sunday, and I was surprised that uh, how far along uh, talk of impeachment is uh, this early on uh, in the uh, Trump presidency. And uh, the, uh, the, the, this is the particular issue that seemed uh, most plausible. He, he, he ran over uh, four different areas that they were exploring, such as the emoluments uh, uh, 
clauses, which I don't think it's probably going to get very far. Uh, but this one of whether uh, uh, Trump will deny, defy a, a court order, that would very likely be plausible grounds for impeachment. Whether this Republican Congress, uh, both houses controlled by considerable margins by Republicans, would move in that direction uh, is still doubtful. It would have to go, go much farther than we've seen for that to, to happen. But I think uh, the question, the, the author of that question you were just reading uh, uh, has his or her uh, finger on what could be uh, the explosive issue of the, of the Trump presidency. Uh, no, I'm thinking that no one has ever uh, defied a court order. The, not, not even Nixon, obviously, with the tapes. He uh, not even turned Nixon over the tapes. With the tapes. Uh, um, the, the, the episode I particularly think of uh, is a Truman uh, with the uh, steel strike, uh, the Supreme Court, uh, in the midst of the Korean War, uh, the steel workers uh, find that the steel corporations uh, uh, will not uh, bargain in good faith with them and start to go out on strike. And uh, Truman orders his uh, uh, Secretary of Commerce, Sawyer, to, to seize the steel mills and have the government uh, operate them. And the steel companies uh, carry that case up to the United States Supreme Court. And the court in Youngstown, Sheet and Tube v. Sawyer, uh, strike down the president's uh, order uh, with some sweeping language by some of the more liberal judges. Uh, Truman is furious. He was fond of uh, writing uh, very blunt uh, memos uh, that he never sent. Uh, but historians are blessed by, uh, with, the, uh, with the documents that he didn't destroy. Either. So we know what he was, know what he was, uh, uh, what he was thinking about. But he obeyed the, he obeyed the order. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, famously uh, uh, sought to pack the United States Supreme Court in 1937. Uh, 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 but uh, when, uh, when the court uh, invalidated the uh, two major pieces of economic legislation of its first term, the National Industrial Recovery Act and the Agricultural Adjustment Act, uh, uh, Roosevelt did not dispute their authority to do so. And when, uh, in the uh, case of uh, Humphrey's executor, uh, they uh, uh, issued a uh, fierce and, I think, unfair uh, rebuke uh, to Roosevelt, uh, Roosevelt absorbed it. So uh, there hasn't been any episode that I can think of where a president has uh, defied the uh, defied the Supreme Court or defied the uh, uh, the the, uh, the federal courts, and there's some indication in the last day or two that uh, that Trump is uh, temporizing his language, uh, despite his uh, his uh, attack on the federal judge as well as the. Uh, attack during the campaign of the judge with respect to the uh, suit against him, that uh, uh, he's realizing uh, this could be a bridge too far for him. Uh, or recrafting the order in a constitutional fashion, which is another avenue he can take, rather than fighting the yes, third branch. Yeah. That is correct, yes. And there is indication he is doing that, yeah. So I think it's fair to say that... Um, the State of the Union's greatest invention, the presidency, is still strong. And as 
Bill Luchtenberg reminds us in his book when Harry Truman promotes the Marshall Plan or John F. Kennedy challenges us to do for our country, not ourselves, or Lyndon Johnson says we shall overcome, or Ronald Reagan waxes poetic about the Challenger disaster. Um, as you point out, at these moments, the lions can still be magnificent. And so is um, The American President, the book by the equally magnificent, um, ever energetic and brilliant William Luchtenberg, who brings the 20th century back to life in his book and has given us the aspirations and the yardsticks and the hope to face the 21st century. And I hope that we've left out just enough to inspire part three. Thank you, Bill. <laughs> Thank you very much, Alex. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, all. Thank you all very much. My name is Alex Castle. I'm the manager of public programs here. And I just want to remind you before you go that uh, William Luchtenberg and Harold Holzer, they'll be out in our Smith Gallery to sign books. Our book sales are done in our museum store. It's on our 77th Street side. And also, uh, William Luchtenberg will be returning with Douglas Brinkley and Jeffrey Ward on May 13th. You can find that on page 21 of the brochure. They're going to be talking about FDR and his place in history. And of course, Harold Holzer will be with us many more times as well. May tw uh, March 29th, his next one is the Battles of Bull Run. You can find that at page 16. So we hope to see you all back here again. Thank you so much. Thank you to Bill Luckenberg and Thank Harold Holzer. Thank you. Thanks, Harold. Thank you. <laughs>